What can be the unifying moral to our much-needed societal change? Something that's secular and naturalistic, free from the myopic view of the world we live by today. Hi, this is Takatoshi Shibayama, the host of the Future Design Podcast. In this episode, Jamie Woodhouse, a community builder of sentientism, talks to us about what can be the basis of our culture that allow us to reconsider issues such as climate change and unjust treatment to each other and the species that we live with on this earth. We dive into the philosophy of sentientism that is based on evidence, reason, and moral consideration for all sentient beings. So stick around to the end. Future Design Podcast. Jamie, thank you very much for being on our show's Future Design Podcast. We talk about things, people improving ourselves to create a better uh, future for humanity and the rest of the world. And I found you on, you know, online. You were talking about sentient, uh, sentientism, uh, which I think was an, a huge upgrade for humanism, huge upgrade for veganism. And it, it really wanted to talk to you about what your thinking is behind all this movement that you're trying to create at the moment. We're going through a lot of difficulties uh, in terms of humanity and, 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 and the planet yeah. itself. And definitely, we definitely need more people like yourselves to be out uh, in public talking about it. So can we just dive right into what sentientism is? Because it's not a very familiar word that uh, people are, are used yeah. to. Yeah, no, it's, well, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. And Thank it's, you. Um, good to be able to talk about sentientism. It has too many syllables. It's a little difficult to say, but um, it's essentially the word sentient ism uh, on the end. And I was nervous yeah. about creating a, yeah, and yet another ism. We have lots already, but I think this one's important. So we'll see if your uh, viewers and listeners agree. Um, so in simple terms, sentientism is trying to answer what I think are the two most important philosophical questions. Um, what should we believe in? You know, what's true, what is real? Um, but also, what should we uh, what should we care about morally? What matters morally, and by extension, what doesn't? Um, and the clue to the second part of the question is in the name. So, sentientism, um, when it thinks about what should we care about morally, says we should care about anything that's sentient. Um, and sentience is the capacity to have experiences. Those are typically either good experiences, which we might call flourishing or well-being or bad experiences, which generally we'd call suffering. Um, so sentientism very simply says, when we're thinking about what should matter morally, however we, we make our decisions, um, every being that's capable of suffering or flourishing, we should grant them some moral consideration, we should have compassion for them. So that's where the word sentientism comes from, if you like, that's, you know, our moral circle should include everything that can suffer. There's no type of suffering we should exclude. Um, so that's one side of it. The other side, um, how should we choose what to believe, um, is very similar to secular humanism or uh, a sort of naturalistic worldview that says uh, there is a physical world, there's a reality that we're all part of, there's matter, there's energy, energy. Uh, of course there's dark energy and dark matter as well, and lots of things we don't understand, and, and there's information processing. Um, and it's breathtakingly complex and rich and very hard to understand. And maybe there will be limits to our understanding, but that's all there is. Um, we're a part of a naturalistic world and using evidence of that reality and reasoning about it 
is the only viable way of developing reliable, useful, true knowledge. Um, so that naturalistic side then rejects supernatural beliefs, uh, rejects religious beliefs, and just says we should use evidence and reason to decide what to believe in. And that belief, you know, outside of formal systems like maths, is is never a hundred percent perfect. It's never a hundred percent confident. Uh, like any good science, it's always provisional and probabilistic, and we're always open to new evidence. Um, but that's that's the way forward when trying to decide what to believe in. So that can sound quite um, obvious in a way. You might summarize it as a, it's a worldview that's committed to evidence, reason, and co having compassion for all sentient beings. Um, but as you hinted earlier on, it can have some quite radical implications for you know personal decisions, for institutional policies, for human and animal rights, uh, for animal advocacy, and for yeah how we try and make the world and the universe a better place. So um, yeah, maybe we can go through some of those implications as we talk. Yeah, for sure. And what I kind of think uh, what you touched upon there is that uh, you want to be secular and you also want to be evidence-based. And you know, not, not that I'm trying to disagree, I'm just playing a devil's advocate here as well, is that you know, science is still immature, right? I mean, yeah. we're still discovering so many things as we go and not everything that we can actually find in this world that makes sense can be found with evidence and neither can religion itself. I mean, I think religion has its good things. Obviously, you know, all religions teach us to be compassionate and uh, treat each other well and, and yeah. all these beautiful things that are attached to it. Obviously, the people who actually become too fundamentalist about it or who believes way too much and there's not much bandwidth for them to accept others that have different beliefs uh, can fall into the trap of being, uh, you know, less less compassionate, less tolerant yeah. of each other. So when you talk about let's focus more on being evidence-based and let's take out religion out of the equation, are you taking out the fact that, that you're taking even the good things and bad things out of it? I'd put it this way, rather, I, I don't think sentientism is anti-religion and it's not anti the supernatural. You know, most sentientists and there are many, many different types and varieties of us um, have a deep appreciation for many of the good things that sit within religious worldviews. So as you say, you know, compassion, um, you know, lots of different varieties of the golden rule about doing to others as you would like to be treated. Um, so there's many good things that flow through religious ways of thinking. Um, all it does is it says, um, and, and it also doesn't explicitly say, you know, there is no God, there is no supernatural, there is no spirit, there is no heaven or hell. It just says, if there's no evidence for something, no good evidence for something, we just don't believe it. So it's more of an absence of belief than it is explicitly saying we are 100% confident that there is no supernatural deity. Mm. So it's more about the ethics that you're more uh, focused on rather than the... Well, you know, it, it, but it is both, right? And, and in a way, that's part of the start. So when, when many people um, criticize a naturalistic or a scientific point of view, and they're, they're slightly different, but they do relate, you know, science is a sort of, you know, it's like a formal way of being naturalistic, but it's not the only way of having naturalistic views. You know, I've, um, you know, I have very good evidence that, that my laptop is here. I, I haven't done any science, right? I'm just experiencing it. That's pretty good evidence. Um, so naturalism is broader. But when many people criticize naturalism and science, 
I think they're criticizing a straw man because they're pretending that science thinks it's perfect. They're pretending science thinks it has all of the answers and that those answers are incontrovertible and can never be challenged. And that's almost exactly the opposite of a naturalistic worldview. A naturalistic worldview says, you know, we don't really know. We have this evidence. It is partial. It's provisional. We may find new things. But based on what we have seen is a probabilistic view, you know, a confidence-based level of view of what we think is likely to be real. But it's very rarely, if ever, you know, completely confident. <laughs> and that's the power of a naturalistic view is that because it can take in new evidence, take in new ideas and, and self-correct and fix its errors, and there are many errors in science and naturalism over its history, that's its power because it is inexorably, it's never right, but it's always trying to get less wrong. Mm. Um, whereas, whereas other belief systems tend to ossify because they're fixed around some sort of set dogma that's very difficult to mm. challenge. So, so the, the, the situation with uh, you know, re established religions and religious worldviews, on the one hand, it's absolutely welcoming that sort of universal compassion, wherever that comes from. You know, if someone has a universal broad compassion, you know, whether that's for supernatural reasons, whether it's mandated by a deity or whether it's come from their own, you know, evolved sense of what's good and bad, um, you know, I think we, we welcome that compassion. Um, we would still say, okay, but we think your beliefs are highly likely to be wrong because there's no good evidence for them. So there is still an epistemological disagreement there. But as you say, the most important thing is, is the ethics. And I think while many people of a religious mindset or a supernatural mindset can have um, you know, really strong, compassionate ethics, you do often see, as you hinted at, you see problems leaking in. Um, and it's very hard to avoid those problems. Um, so some of those problems, for example, can be that even if you have a universal broad compassion for the suffering and the flourishing, the life and death of other humans and non-human animals. In many religious systems, that's not the most important thing. Ultimately, the most important thing is the deity. That's even more important than people. Um, and often uh, also in the priority list is the religious organization itself and its reputation, the mm. priests of the organization, you know, and so we get to a position where suffering, flourishing, life and death, which to sentientism are the most important thing. In fact, the only thing that matters often in a religious system get pushed down the priority list and that can lead to you know many of the practical ethical problems we see in real world religious organizations um they can also be in out tribalism you know that's often you know the compassion is often conditional and so we have compassion for people in our church but the apostates or the non-believers you know might be uh subject to the death penalty in the current world or might burn in hell in the future world but neither of those are particularly compassionate outcomes um so there are many positive threads that run through most religions but i think the positive threads generally predate all of those religions across many cultures and many regions and many um uh, and, and many schools of thought those positive threads have flowed through religions and often been adapted and sometimes warped by them um, and none of the positive elements of the religions depend on the supernatural. So you could imagine a religion which takes out any sexism, any homophobia, any racism, any cruel and unusual punishments in this life or the afterworld, and you could strip out all of those ethical problems to be left with something which is based on universal compassion. Um, 
but then I'm not sure why you'd need the supernatural at all. Um, but many religions have followed that path, right? So, so when you look at um, uh, the Christian um, church of Quakerism, it's actually got quite close to that state already. Some schools of Buddhism uh, also, although it's not technically original, as I think you said in one of your previous episodes, um, have much in common with that sort of rationalistic, compassionate stance. Jain, the Jain religion does as well. Um, but even in those um, churches, those sort of more modern churches, ones that have evolved towards a, frankly, a humanistic or sentientistic view, you can still see some issues popping up. So those are the two challenges with religion to my mind. One is epistemological, right? The beliefs are supernatural, poorly founded, fabricated, and therefore largely arbitrary, which is a problem in its own right. Um, but then practically that then leads into some often very, very problematic ethics, which you know, we're struggling with on, on the world stage on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, religion really has really deep roots into culture as well. So that's why yeah. you do see the sexism or ageisms or, you know, many of the problems that we see with religion. And because it roots from that cultural aspect of it, you know, back in the days, I guess, when, when somebody wants to teach you something, whether it be Buddha or Jesus, they, they need to tailor it so that it fits within that culture. And they will bring in the culturalistic aspects of it so that it can scale in, in, in a more technological sense. And, and therefore, it, it, people can really latch onto the idea because it kind of sorts to fit, fit into their culture. And you know, for me, you know, going forward, when we talk about uh, sentientism or any, any type of wave of schools of thought, for me, I find that you know, putting a category into something as an ism or an ist of something really ostracates uh, you know, the other people's ways of thinking. And I think that also creates certain conflicts uh, with people. If you say, you know, I only believe this way, that way, that, that is the ism, right? And yeah. you know, for you when, you, when you launched this thing, you probably thought through what is the best word to go for it. But is there a particular reason that you added in the ism into your, your thinking? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't invent the term, actually. It originally came out of the uh, animal advocacy and animal ethics movement uh, in the 1970s. So the, there are probably two philosophers who um, originally developed the term, a chap called Peter Singer um, and another called Richard Ryder, a British psychologist. Um, but the term was originally used in quite a derogatory sense by another philosopher who was criticising their work. So he was almost saying that they, was, they were putting forward the view that you should grant moral consideration based on sentience. So they were saying, um, you know, we care about the suffering of, of other humans, but non-human animals suffer too. Surely we should care about them because we have a common evolutionary basis. Their suffering is maybe different from human suffering, but it has a related quality that is just as morally important. So they were arguing for us to extend our moral circle beyond humans to include certainly most non-human animals. Um, and they were criticised by that. Um, by another chap called John Rodman, who said, you know, we have racism, we have sexism. This is just a type of sentientism because you're discriminating against things that can't suffer. Um, uh, but in a way, they've, they've then took the term and, and, and re-owned it and said, well, yes, we are. That's the whole point. The whole point of, uh, of this discrimination is that we uh, morally care about everything capable of suffering, but things that can't suffer can't suffer, so why should we care about them? You know, a rock or a plant or a, you know, they might be important because of their impact on humans or non-human animals, but in themselves, you know, a rock has no moral 
salience in itself. So they've then sort of took the term back and said, yes, that, that, you know, it is discriminatory, but it's the only valid form of discrimination. Mm. Because if morality is about suffering and flourishing, then we should care about all the things that can suffer and flourish. Um, so, so, but all I've done in the last couple of years is their philosophy was always naturalistic. So it was always set up as an alternative to a sort of religious moral system. So they were applying science and evidence and reasoning, working out what sentience was and judging what types of beings and species are sentient. It was always naturalistic in that narrow sense. And all I've really done is recast it to say, um, in the same way as uh, humanism is about evidence and reason. So that's another ism. Uh, just as humanism is about evidence and reason and compassion for all humans, let's take this and extend that, say, well, we're also about evidence and reason in every respect of life. Um, but instead of extending our moral compassion for humans, we extend it to all sentience. So in a way, it was taking that term that came out of the animal advocacy movement, also looking at secular humanism. I count myself as a humanist too, but being frustrated that humanism is too anthropocentric, it's too focused on humans, almost exclusively. Mm. So that frustration with humanism and that pre-existing term that led me to say, okay, this idea, uh, yes, it's an ism, um, and there are too many already, and there is a risk of it being exclusionary, but it focuses on you know, what is morally salient, and that is sentience, the capacity to suffer and flourish. Uh, so that was the background for it. The other thing I've been very keen to do in my writing and my, my speaking is, is to keep it very, very simple. So this isn't a fully... Um, developed philosophy that will answer every philosophical trolley problem and trade-off and policy issue. It doesn't tell you the answers to all of those things. All it says is commit to evidence and reason in deciding what to believe and commit to having compassion for all sentient beings. So the idea being it's so simple and so basic and su such a fundamental platform, it could even potentially have universal application because as long as someone's committed to using evidence and reason, they might still disagree on the conclusions. They might still have conflicting evidence. They might still reason about things in different ways. But as long as, in principle, everyone's committed to engaging with reality to develop our understanding of reality, and as long as everyone recognizes that there's no type of suffering or no suffering being that we should ignore or deliberately try to harm or kill, hopefully those two very simple foundation stones are at a low enough base that you know, it has universal potential. Um, but as you say, that it still will exclude. You know, if someone says, you know, yes, there is good evidence that that animal is capable of suffering, but I do not have any compassion for them, so I'm happy to kill them. Well, then, yeah, you're not a sentientist. So by definition, or if someone says, you know, I, I get what you, I get what you're saying about evidence and reason, and I apply that myself in most of my life, as everybody does, religious people or not. Um, but, you know, I do believe in this sort of revelation from the Holy Book or something my parents or my priest told me that there is a supernatural being and now I don't have any evidence for it that you know, would be robust in a normal setting. Well, then they're not sentientist either. But the important thing is sentientism has compassion for those people too, right? That, that, and I have to remind um, many people in the animal advocacy movement and many people in the atheist and humanist movements is that you have to have universal compassion, even for the people you dis disagree with, even for the people that might be harming animals or even the people that might be fundamentalist religion and might have harmful ethics. Uh, universal compassion means universal compassion. Um, so, um, you know, 
would welcome compassion from any source, even if it's supernaturally motivated, that person wouldn't necessarily count themselves as a sentientist. I was I was thinking more in terms of uh, climate change and the impact that it has, and yeah. not I'm not talking particularly about the developed countries because they have risen to a certain level that we can choose whether we want to eat animal protein or not and yeah. choose the way we consume things. But you know, I live in Singapore. I'm surrounded by countries that are still growing and they haven't even tasted yeah. their first animal protein. There are people like that, and yeah. and what is it that you know you can say that well, I think, you know, for us, I don't want to be a, on a high horse telling them that they, sh they shouldn't be able to experience the things that we have uh, as people yeah. from developed countries have experienced, you know, the industrialization, the abundance of animal protein that we're able to eat and being able to, you know, urbanize a lot of the, um, you know, landscapes that we have so, so that we have this beautiful, high technological life that we live in right now. And, yeah. you know, for us to just go down to, you know, these countries around here and say, well, you know, too bad, you know, you <laughs> we messed things up already. I'm sorry. Uh, well, so now it's about sentientism. So, you know, you got to forget about, uh, you know, urbanizing, you got to forget about eating animal protein. I mean, what, what do you have to say about that? It's a really important counter because, and, and we will get into areas where sentientism is neutral on those answers, but, you know, I have a personal opinion. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I have to remind myself of that, right? Sentientism is just those two things, evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. So there's much scope for disagreement beyond that. Um, I think the starting point in those conversations has to be compassion for those people, right? And um, universal compassion for those people. And that means recognizing their interests and their needs, what makes them happy, what makes them suffer, and wanting the best for them in whatever respect, right? and respecting that it's you know they have probably the best personal judgment about what is good for them right um so that's the, that's the starting point it's not about restricting people and it's not about challenging people it's it, the you know, most sentientists would want reduction of suffering and enhanced flourishing for everybody mm. um now because and again i can't speak for all sentientists because there's a breathtaking diversity of opinions right across the political spectrum across the economic spectrum across the technological spectrum but because we're quite committed to evidence and reason we tend to be quite positive about uh, using science and technology and innovation of ways of uh, of reducing suffering and enhancing flourishing um so that leads on to one of the topics that i know you've covered in some of your previous episodes about are there ways of finding more ethical more climate friendly ways of meeting those needs whether it's the you know, people wanting to eat meat and shellfish um through technology that mean you've resolved the trade-off right and it's the best of all worlds because you've radically reduced the suffering of the non-human animals involved you've improved the climate situation but you haven't you know constrained or undermined um you know what what those individuals would want so th that's part of the idea is it's not trying to restrict technology it's actually I think most sentences would want to be quite bullish about sensibly using technology to resolve some of those trade-offs. Um, but at the same time, um, you will hear people using a cultural or religious tradition to justify something that just very clearly is ethically wrong. And I think most sentences will take quite a strong stance there. And they'll say, look, I, re I respect that you might have a religious tradition or a religious tradition or a cultural tradition that doing these things is normal and natural and you get pleasure from doing them. You have a sense of social solidarity and 
um, and, and respecting ancestral tradition. But if the harms you're, if, if what that's leading you to do is causing harm to other sentient beings, whether they're other humans or other non-human animals, there is a strong ethical rationale for not doing that. So um, while some people who are otherwise compassionate um, and have quite modern ethics are very, very hesitant about challenging other cultures, personally, I'm not, right? So I've had conversations with otherwise very socially liberal people who refuse to condemn um, the practice in some countries of throwing homosexual people off roofs to their deaths, right? And, and this otherwise very socially liberal person cannot bring themselves to condemn it because they're nervous about um, appearing colonial and imposing our culture on somebody else's and mm. who are we to judge? And to my mind, that sort of relativism is, is deeply insidious, right? There are, there are some uh, ethical fundamentals about suffering and flourishing and life and death that we should be unashamed about um, trying to put forward actually regardless of indigenous or cultural or religious traditions. Mm. Now, we can still have a breathtaking diversity of art, culture, music, schools of thought, even you know, naturalistic spirituality. Um, you know, a sentientist government wouldn't ban religion, it would be secular. So you, would, you, you, could, have, you could believe what you liked, you get a freedom of belief, um, you could be as weird as you like, right? But the ethical stance has to be pretty clear, right? Suffering is a bad thing, flourishing is a good thing. Um, you know, if your beliefs or your traditions lead you to practices that needlessly cause suffering or death to other sentient beings, then we take a pretty hard line. So yeah. does that Yeah, does that it makes make sense. sense. Look, I mean, in, in my country, in Japan, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners, and you obviously know this, but there was this documentary called The Cove. There's a fisherman village in, in, in Japan uh, called yeah. Taiji, and a lot, all these fishermen go out and hunt all these dolphins. And their reasoning is that, you know, it, it takes away their livelihood because all these uh, dolphins are eating the fish that they're trying to catch. So if you yeah. go back into this sentientism and then we approach this problem, what would we have to say them? Because, tell them, sorry, because we have to say, okay, you can't kill dolphins. Moreover, you can't even kill the fish that you're trying to get. So we have to throw your livelihoods away and go find another job. Now, but then you have to tell these people who are probably in their like late 50s or 60s yeah. who can't get another job, right? So how do you go to certain industries or certain uh, cultures or certain societies where their whole livelihood is based on, you know, killing animals or, or you know, yeah. deforestation or, or some, some things that we can't really uh, agree upon? Yeah, it's, and it's a massive problem. And as you say, it's not one of the interesting things about the Cove is that there is also massive ethical outcry around the world about this going on, um, when arguably it's no, not really that different from what happens in every factory farm in almost every country around the world, yet that is something acceptable that people are comfortable buying from. So there is a, um, a breathtaking disconnect in people's logical thinking about you know, which types of species count and which don't. So generally most people, and I'll come back to your question because it's a deeply important one. So, so most people will see you know, dolphins, charismatic wildlife, uh, dogs, you know, pets and companions as not as important as humans, but certainly important enough that you would see harming or killing them as, as very serious wrongdoing, um, although that varies across cultures. But farmed animals or vermin or other types of non-charismatic wild animals are basically granted zero moral consideration. So even though you know, a pig and a dog have very similar intellects and 
arguably a pig, you know, certainly with my dog, you know, she's less intelligent than, than, the, than the average pig. Um, but that, you know, there's no logical reason to make that distinction. It's a cultural and societal thing that we've learned that these things are normal. And, and I have to remind myself of that because for many, many years of my life, I was in a deep set of cognitive dissonance around these things where mm. I knew ethically and logically there was no justification for it, but, you know, I still participated. Um, so, so that's one of the things we're trying to counter with sentientism is at least bring a more rational view to what our ethics should be. Uh, it doesn't mean you automatically solve the problems, but you do acknowledge that, you know, yes, fish are sentient. Yes, dolphins are sentient. Yes, pigs and dogs are sentient. Yes, human babies are sentient. So causing them suffering or death is a moral negative. Now, can you do that immediately tomorrow? Probably not. Are there many other considerations you need to bear in mind as you try and reduce suffering? Absolutely. Um, is even being a vegan an ethically perfect state? Absolutely not, right? Arable farming and all sorts of other things we do cause harm and suffering. So um, we shouldn't let the fact that these things are hard or that we can't attain perfection stop us from re reducing suffering over time and, and, and trying to make things better. Um, but that does lead into very difficult challenges like the one you've laid out. And we have to have compassion for those people um, in helping transition happen. There are some in the animal advocacy movement who will look on people who do fishing or farming or um, bullfighting or you know, uh, fur trapping or hunting as you know, deeply evil, almost like the enemy, like a virus that needs to be eradicated. So some parts of the animal advocacy movement, and I understand why, right, because these are serious moral wrongs, end up actually feeling very negative about the human race or certain parts of the human race. But we have to have compassion for humans too, because humans are sentient as well, right? And these yeah. people have livelihoods and cultures and preferences that you can't just wave a magic wand and trash. But I think the answer has to be one where we use evidence and reason to work out the best way forward. So the sorts of ideas, uh, and you can see this happening particularly around factory farming and, and, and cattle ranching and, and um, pig farming, is about helping those people who have livelihoods that depend on causing catastrophic harm and environmental damage, helping them transition. Um, so you'll see cattle ranchers switching to oat milk production. Um, you'll see people thinking about taking government subsidies, which are often you know, billions of taxpayers, uh, dollars and yen and pound, are, are pushed into animal farming to subsidize it, instead of using those subsidies to help switch to plant-based agriculture or clean meat technologies um, and I'm not pretending this is easy but we have to stop thinking that that harm both the direct harm caused to the non-harm non-human animals and also the environmental harms which are absolutely catastrophic we have to break the taboo and recognize that those are bad things mm. um, but that doesn't mean the answers are easy but if we use evidence reason technology and shift policy to help um, those people who are involved in those industries transition we can make phenomenal change happen hmm. um, but yeah. it won't be easy and it will take time for sure for sure i could totally see that and these are these are you know policy changes as well whether it be from the government yeah. side or and these things have to be a universally concerted efforts that happen pretty much at the same time because you know if you if there are countries that are still dependent on or are still looking at growth for their economy and they want to keep doing yeah. what they want to do and then there are others are turning more sentientism and say you know let's switch on to something you know more 
um, uh, greener or you know yeah. sentient you know driven kind of mentality it's it's very hard and and I have this conversation with a lot of people who are you know working in the kind of clean tech or or yeah. circular economy and all, all these people and one of the questions that usually pops out for people from who are a little bit skeptic of, around these ideas is that are you thinking about you know creating a global economy that is based out of you know growth you know, do we have to degrowth our economy so that we yeah. switch to something else? You know, there's there's a lot of you know hopes and desires and 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 almost religious uh, faith yeah. in capitalism that you know they think that this is the way it has to be. And a lot of people can't think outside the box. Even if they do, you know, there's a lot of criticism saying, "Oh, you're a Marxist and and you're you're thinking you know in a very different uh, yeah. mind frame." Mind, but you know, socialism and and um, you know, the circular economy kind of thing is, is quite different in my view. Uh, but, you know, it's always a polarizing view, right? You're a capitalist, yeah. or you're a yeah. socialist, and it always has to be that way. And the conversation is always that way, right? So um, how can we, you know, kind of talk about these things in a, in a more non-polarized way? No, I, th I think there's three, three points there. One is, um, I agree, just saying to, you know, developing economies and countries you can't you can't do what we did you can't develop you can't grow i think is a deeply wrong thing to do um, because we need to have compassion for the billions of people in those countries um, and it would just be searingly arrogant for us to have you know followed the aggressively industrialized path uh, made ourselves all rich and comfortable and then say oh now because of the climate you have to stop or because of ethics you have to stop um, but Encouragingly, what I'm hoping is that because of new developments in technology, um, many of those countries will find an alternative path. Um, and, and you can see hints of it already, um, whether it's around animal agriculture and, you know, there's some really interesting Chinese and Japanese and um, uh, Indian ventures that are developing clean meat technologies, or whether it's around um, climate change, where again, um, you know, across a lot of the African content, continent, people are finding a different way to um, uh, have decentralized energy solutions that don't just follow, you know, let's build loads of coal-fired power stations. So what I'm hoping is that rather than, you know, the developed economies arrogantly telling developing economies what to do, the developing economies themselves have such a level of ethical and technical advancement, they'll find a better path anyway, both on the climate and both ethically, um, that will enable us to have something that is more sustainable, more ethical, but actually will still give all of the benefits of you know, wealth and prosperity and freedom to their people. That's the hope. I mean, it may sound a little naively optimistic, but I, but I do think that's the route we're going to see those countries taking. And it won't be because the developed countries have told them to do it. It's because the path the developed countries followed was deeply flawed and problematic, and the developing countries have got much better ideas. So I'm hoping that will happen. Um, that's certainly true on the on the climate change side, and I'm hope, hoping will be true agriculture as well. Um, on the degrowth argument, I think that links in because, um, again, I'll tell you my personal view here, but um, sentientists have a breathtaking uh, array of views politically and economically. They all share that naturalistic stance and that compassionate stance, uh, but there are sentientists who are anarchists, who are socialists, who are communists, who are capitalists, who are um, um, amazingly, they still all talk to each other, which is one of the things I've found really encouraging um, so far, um, because they just have very different ways of 
that they think we should make the world better, but they all want to make the world better for compassionate reasons. And they all have different evidence bases, of course, and maybe they'll converge over time because they're, they'll share that evidence. But, um, you know, it's very, very broad. Nearly everyone is socially liberal, of course, because if you have a sentientist point of view and that compassionate point of view, you can't be a, a racist or a sexist or a homophobe, right? So they're all socially liberal but across the economic political spectrum and different ways of organizing. You know, it's a breathtaking diversity. Um, now there are some, and this is a part of a problem, I think, in the wider environmental movement, who, who insist that degrowth and you know, destroying capitalism is the only viable way of having a sustainable world. Um, and I have some empathy with that, but too often that point of view seems to come from people who themselves are already quite comfortable and living in quite developed economies where they already have, you know. Rich people you know, want socialism for them, right? <laughs> absolutely. And, and it almost does become what you suggested before, which is like, right, I've got what I need. Now we need degrowth. But, but degrowth and, and destroying capitalism, unfortunately, tends to hurt the poorest most, right? So um, I know people are skeptical about GNP and GDP and these economic numbers. They seem a bit abstruse. They measure the wrong things often. But it's still true that if an economy goes into depression or recession, it is the poorest that get hurt. The hardest and it's the poorest countries that get hurt the hardest mm. so for environmentalists who say um you know we need aggressive degrowth and we need to take the human population back down to five billion uh, you know i'm really nervous about where their ethical mindset is taken mm. and and i think if you offset that with a proper evidence base and a genuinely compassionate point of view where you really want all of the people around the world to flourish um you know some some scientists will disagree with me, but I don't think that takes you to a degrowth place. I think that takes you to a place where we still need growth. We do need to um, adjust our indicators of what good is to include well-being and, and flourishing and not just have things focused on you know, raw economic measures. That's absolutely sensible. Um, but we need to use innovation and new technologies and new philosophies to enable us to keep growing and keep helping people be better off uh, at the same time, not go to a sort of uh, turn back the clock, rewind, degrowth, depopulate, um, that I think can have some deeply serious ethical implications. Mm. So mean, I've gone on too long, but hopefully that's... No, no, that's not at all. I mean, what I always think about people who advocate for more socialism, or, or especially people who talk about universal basic income, is that they often, too often, they forget about that the economy needs to keep going to generate that surplus to, to distribute that wealth. And, yeah. you know, some countries are, are well equipped to do that, let's say like Norway, where they have so much oil reserves that they can, you know, redistribute it. That's the why they have a very, um, you know, very well-structured welfare state. But as in certain countries, I mean, obviously you can't do that. And yeah. unless you gr keep that economy in somewhat in growth mode, you can't also be able to subsidize certain industries to move on to another one or tell certain industries to stop doing what they're doing don't make too many plastics and then why don't you invest in something more but i mean you know in a corporate structure you can't really do that because you got to go for things that you actually make money the most otherwise you know you have millions of shareholders to answer to and in you know also you might have to lay off some employees because you're doing yeah. that i mean you know there's a lot of complications on saying you know, let's turn, in, turn this into a more circular economy or let's think about more of the planetary issues. So 
you know, there's so many moving parts and so many variables that we have to think about in, in, in moving towards that direction. Yeah. And it, it, it almost for an individual, like any, any one individual or any consumer that's out there who are very concerned about these issues, it, it almost ends up in despair because there's really not much they can do um, by themselves, right? So what is a way yeah. that you think that, you know, each, each and one of us can actually start making an impact or, you know, at least, you know, start the conversation, drive the conversation, you know, get, you know, communities going, maybe, you know, talk to local governments, et cetera. I mean, is there, is there a way that um, yeah. we can do, do this? I think there is, um, and it's not easy, and there is uh, much disagreement about how. But I think every individual, there's many things you can do. Um, because while, as an individual, you know, there are 8 billion people on the planet, so it might feel like you can't make a difference, even a tiny difference is still a difference, right? So so I would still encourage people to think their own about their own behavior or their own consumption and, and the things they do to try and move towards something, the solutions that cause less suffering, cause less uh, environmental damage, and help other people. Um, and there are many different things you can do around that, you know, whether it's going vegan, whether it's, uh, you know, taking a different sets of decisions. Um, but actually more importantly is how each of those individuals plays a role in institutional policy or governmental change, because uh, generally, as you mentioned before, actually it's the policy and institutional change level where the, the real power is. Yes. Um, but those governments are voted for by voters those institutions are staffed by people who listen to varying degrees. Um, so I think if each individual thinks about their own decisions, but also thinks about how they can influence those institutions through voting, through policy suggestions, through lobbying, through protesting, uh, through writing to corporations, through um, uh, you know, their own leadership role in creating new NGOs or, or, or being managers in organizations. If you apply this mindset and evidence and reason-based mindset and compassionate mindset, to all of those different levels, I think you can see institutional change happen too. And, and that's when change can happen very rapidly because you know, if we wait for all 8 billion people around the world to consume ethically, it's never gonna happen. What you need is individual consumers making decisions and individual voters making decisions, but you also need governments redirecting subsidies, applying intelligent taxation around um, climate change or you know, ethical externalities, uh, carbon taxes, um, you need uh, corporations playing a role of providing the right products and services in, in an efficient and effective way. Um, so you need all of the different pieces to pull together. But when they do that, I think change can happen very rapidly. Um, and um, while we've talked about sort of two of the major areas about resisting supernatural or religiously motivated harms, um, and there's all sorts of campaigning organizations people can get involved in there to help uh, people either leave religions or to get religions to soften their stances to be more ethical, uh, to persuade more countries to be secular um, rather than theocratic. There's a, lots of brilliant campaigning organizations people can get involved in there. Um, there's clearly the animal advocacy movement as well. People can take direct decisions around what they consume and what they buy and what they wear, but there are also organizations that are campaigning around making animal law and actually protect animals rather than just enabling animal agriculture around transitioning animal agriculture and fishing into different types of industries. There's an enormous way to brilliant organizations there to be involved in. Um, but more generally, this sort of naturalistic approach of just applying evidence and reason, whether it's scientific or whether it's you know, personal thinking to almost every problem 
gives us a slightly better chance of getting the right answers. Um, so uh, one of the things, if people want to come and explore the sentientism.info website, we're starting to build out some thoughts about what these policy implications might be, what these campaigns are, you know, the organizations that are working in these different areas and, and things individual people can do themselves too. Um, but there's an enormous sway. Uh, mm, yeah. And you've been in the management consulting industry for about 25 years. And yeah. now you've you started these movements. I mean, what what actually, you know, because you're probably at the top of your game during that time. And, you know, there must have been something that driven you to start this movement. Uh, and I guess you're doing this full time at the moment. I mean, what, what, what it, why is it that you felt so passionate about this? Um, it was a confluence of two things, really. I, I've, I've long been interested in the sort of atheist humanist um, movements and been part of those and been very interested in the influence of religion and supernatural thinking on ethics generally. Um, almost as a separate thread, I was interested, became interested in vegetarianism and veganism and animal ethics and, and, and animal rights, um, albeit a bit later in life. Um, and it was partly my frustration with some of the humanist movements that led me to, you know, do some more uh, reading and study and, and linking the two together. Um, that was what led me to, you know, finding this term that, that has been around since the 1970s and thinking, you know, can't I take the strengths of secular humanism, the fact it's universal, that it's broad, that it's compassionate, that it's based on evidence and reason, but fix that problem that it's too restricted to, to humans and layer in non-human animals uh, and, and even slightly weirdly be conceptually open to the possibility that one day we might even have sentient AI or mm. you know other forms of non-biological sentient. Um, so it was it was really a philosophical fascination. It's almost an academic fascination, um, but then a practical one as well. In that I do think that if we can get to a point where more people are committed to evidence and reason and have that universal compassion as a, as a basic worldview that makes every single decision every single person takes better than it would otherwise have been. And it just improves our chance of um, making the world a better place. And um, there's nothing more important than that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I was um, a consultant by trade like you and um, was a partner in one of the big global firms for a long while. I still do some consulting now as well, but it's a little bit more ad hoc um, mm. around projects such as this and some other NGO and charity projects I do as well. So. Mm. Um, so it was, it was really just a shift in emphasis and priority to focus on, seems embarrassing to say, but what I think is the most important thing. Mm, right. Yeah, I totally agree. And what, how many people are behind this movement? I mean, is there like a political movement that's happening behind your organization? I mean, how, how do people get involved? There's, um, there isn't an organization, there's no membership, there's no fees, there's no money, there's no governance, there's no nothing. <laughs> mm. um, and that's quite deliberate because it's, um, it's just a worldview, really. Right? Yeah. So um, uh, people might subscribe to it or not, they might agree with it or disagree with it, but it's just a worldview, like humanism or you know, like some of the other isn't. Mm. Um, and I, I wanted to keep it that way. I don't want it to become something that's restrictive or you know, there are a long list of rules or but at the same time, you could you could argue there's a movement growing up around it as well. So we've developed a series of online communities where people who are interested in the idea can come and talk. Um, I've been doing, you know, it's great to come on podcasts like this and spread the word a little bit more and, and writing articles about it. I've been engaging with academics and activists and um, uh, who work in related fields and suggesting how we can integrate some of these fields, you know, getting people who are doing AI ethics and 
animal ethics and uh, epistemological philosophy to talk together and work together. So there's some academic threads to it as well. Um, so in, in a sense, that, and we are starting to think about, uh, you know, what are the implications of this view and what are all of the different campaigns and organizations and actions people can take to put those into practice. Um, so if people are interested, uh, the main home page is at sentientism.info. Um, and I can send you some notes that you can put in the, um, in the show notes if you like. Um, our main um, online community so far is on Facebook. It's just been the easiest place to, to, to run the group. There's over a thousand people on that now from, I think, 90 different countries. So if you just search for sentientism on Facebook, you'll find that. But we've also got a Discord and a Reddit and a LinkedIn group, and we're on most of the other platforms as well, although those aren't quite as busy. Um, and um, on the main website, we've also got a wall that it's been wonderful to see people adding pictures of themselves and personal messages to say why sentientism resonates with them. Uh, we've also been building up a, uh, a page of celebrities and well-known people that uh, we think have a sentientist worldview. So they've probably never heard of the word, but um, through a combination of their you know, atheist humanistic outlook and the fact they're very serious about animal ethics too, we're sort of taking an implication that you know, if they heard about sentientism, they might subscribe. So there's some fascinating figures from, um, you know, from the world screen and celebrity uh, uh, and academia that you know, we think already think this way. Oh, great. But those well, would be the main things. I'd say go to sentientism.info and just search for the word sentientism and you'll find you know, the different Facebook groups and forums and, and, and writing and speaking. So. Yeah, well, definitely follow you for sure. I mean, you were already connected on, on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I think there's uh, a lot of information that actually is on your website, uh, especially that really long um, uh, presentation of, that uh, explains all the details about sentientism and how that affects the United Nations sustainability goals and, and such. And I, I found that very informative. Maybe that yeah, was... I've rather cheekily rewritten the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as well to be a <laughs> Universal Declaration of Sentient Rights. Yeah, so there's loads. I mean, the, the, the simple stuff is evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. But as you said, there's loads and loads of other rich content out there. And I'd love to hear people's feedback and ideas and challenges as well. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. I had a wonderful time speaking to you. And I think a lot of people will get more enlightened about the word uh, and sentientism and, and the ideas behind that. So thank you again. That's great. Love the conversation. Great to meet you. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. If you had enjoyed or disliked the show, please let me know in the comment section. I can only improve or add value to you through your voices. If there are any topics that you'd like me to pick up, please let me know in the comment section as well. I'd love to start chatting with you. And if you'd like to continue listening to the show, please subscribe. Thank you.